Good evening, and please take your seat. For those of you who know that the dean introduces the Friday night lecture, I am not Joe McFarland, but I am grateful to Joe McFarland for allowing me to introduce tonight's speaker. It is truly a great honor for me to be in this position and to introduce the person who I hope will begin a series of discussions about law, society, politics. Professor Robert Post is a Sterling Professor of Law at the Yale Law School. Now the Sterling Professorship is the highest academic honor Yale University awards to a tenured faculty member who is considered the best in their field. Before being named Sterling Professor, Post served as Dean of the Yale Law School for eight years, years in which the school flourished, even though he took office immediately after the recession of 2008. He championed academic excellence, married scholarly work and experiential learning, and focused on strengthening the law school's national intellectual leadership, both in the classroom and the wider legal discourse. His leadership style can be summarized in his own words. What I wanted is to create the structures that would allow others to thrive and flourish. Mr. Post exemplifies servant leadership to an institution. A summa cum laude graduate of Harvard College and the Yale Law School, he obtained his PhD in the history of American civilization from Harvard University. After law school, he clerked for the legendary chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, David Bazelon, and then for an iconic Supreme Court justice, William J. Brennan. Before turning to teaching, he also worked as an associate at Williamson Connolly, widely regarded as one of the top litigation firms in the country. For two decades, he was a, the faculty, a faculty member at the University of California's Berkeley's Law School. Mr. Post has authored or edited over a, hundred over a dozen books and written countless articles on questions of constitutional law and theory. Through his scholarly work, he has become the leading voice in the interpretation of the First Amendment, speech doctrine, campaign finance reform, and questions of privacy in the digital age. He has written on the legality of hatred, trust in the legal system, and freedom of speech on college campuses. Much of his work aims to establish the parameters of speech in a democracy. Mr. Post is a model of the public intellectual. He's always willing to have his views tested, as I expect they will be tonight, if I know our students and our faculty. On a personal note, I'm deeply honored that Mr. Post has agreed to speak on the eve of my inauguration. We could not ask for a more fitting legal mind to come to St. John's College and speak on citizenship, undergraduate education, and great books. Professor Robert Post. Uh, thank you, Nora, for that overly kind uh, introduction. 
Um, I, I want to say it's really a, a distinct and I would also say unexpected honor to be here um, at St. John's on the occasion of um, Professor Demleitner's uh, inauguration as the 25th president of uh, this uh, campus. It's, um, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful moment for you and it's a wonderful moment for American um, education. I want to say that um, Professor um, Demleitner carries forward an extraordinary tradition of educational excellence and distinction that dates back a long, long way, I think, you know, to 1696. And her, her selection to uh, lead this campus, to me, illustrates um, how academic excellence can adapt to new circumstances and yet simultaneously maintain a fidelity to a worthy tradition. So congratulations to you and congratulations to you all on this, on this happy occasion. The, the theme that I've uh, chosen to speak about tonight is the relationship between the unique educational mission of St. John's and the preservation of democracy here in the United States. And I acknowledge, I acknowledge at the outset that it's not immediately obvious how a very special curriculum that focuses with intense concentration on the great works of the past can speak to the contemporary dilemmas of uh, modern America. Um, but I'm choosing this theme because it is so pressing. Many of us, and I include myself in that, have been uh, taken aback, I mean really genuinely uh, uh, frightened by how fragile and how endangered our democracy um, has become. And we are apprehensive about its precarious state and we believe um, that we, it's of the utmost importance to take steps to um, protect it. So the question I wanna put on the table is how the essentially political project of preserving democracy might be connected to the distinguished educational project of St. John's which focuses on the masterpieces of the past. How can a conversation with bygone figures help us with today's pressing problems? That's the issue I want to um, frame for, to, for this evening. And I, I ask this, as I say, with some urgency, and that's because outside of the serene and beautiful and peaceful walls of St. John's, the world is burning. It is literally burning in the Amazon rainforests, um, but there is also a brutal war in Eastern Europe. There's the threat of war in the Pacific. Um, violence is sweeping the globe everywhere from Mali to Lima to Tehran. Democracies from Hungary to India teeter uh, on, the, on the brink of uh, totalitarian um, excess. And we all suffer from the fierce storms, the droughts, the displacements of a planet that is burning and growing overheated every day. So each year, the world outside of St. John seems to grow more dangerous and more threatening, and the United States is not exempt from that. I remember when I grew up in the 1950s, a long time ago, America felt somehow beyond the rough and the rapid white waters of history. History is something that happened elsewhere to other countries that you know, experienced uh, war or revolution. But here, everything just went on like it was normal in the 1950s, it was like a sitcom. Um, but that's no longer true. 
in my lifetime, I don't think I have witnessed a political atmosphere that is more angry, more poisonous, or more baleful. And there are no doubt many causes for this political distemper, including years of COVID, growing inequality, the loss of blue collar manufacturing work, gaping cultural divides between rural and urban communities, and an explosive resurgence of bigotry and prejudice. All of that's true, but this afternoon I want to focus on one particular dimension of our contemporary political crisis, which is the rise of extreme partisanship. It's on that that I want to focus. And that's because American political life is now divided into camps that are so mutually antagonistic that ordinary political life has become all but impossible. We no longer seem to be able to wheel and to deal, to compromise and to construct. We tear down, we troll, we attack, we bluster, we become outraged, but we don't reach across the aisle. The storming of the Capitol seems merely the physical symbol of this underlying disorder. Our politics has become uh, analogous to a scene of war. And it's reminiscent, some of you might know, of Carl Schmitt, the political theorist, Carl Schmitt's corrosive definition of politics as an existential confrontation between friends and enemies. So a 2014 study by two political scientists found that, and I'm quoting now the study, hostile feelings for the opposing party are ingrained or automatic in voters' minds and effective polarization based on party is just as strong as polarization based on race. Just think about that for a minute. In a, in a frightening conclusion, the study notes that elites now have a greater incentive to engage in confrontation than in cooperation. And just to give you a sense of how profoundly divisive our political life has become, consider that in 1960, about 5% of Americans expressed a negative reaction to the prospect of their child marrying a member of the opposite political party, 5%. But some 50 years later, in 2010, that figure had risen eightfold to 40%. And that includes both Republicans and Democrats. 40% would object to their child marrying someone from the opposite political party. And, and it's plain, I think, that our politics has become personal. It's become a matter of identity. And it is experienced as a matter of survival. Uh, the best example of that that I can give you is a very famous essay that was written during the 2016 election. It was by Michael Anton of the Claremont Institute. It was called the Flight 93 election. And the very first sentence of that essay read this way. It said, 2016 is the Flight 93 election. Charge the cockpit or you die. Think about that as politics, as existential, as existential struggle. And what worries me is that such extreme identitarian division is potentially fatal in a nation like the United States. <clears throat> a heterogeneous country like America can be held together only, only by successful politics. But successful politics is impossible 
if we remain balkanized by narrow tribal attitudes. And the reason why that's true is a very old story. In fact, it was told to us many millennia ago by Thucydides, the great Athenian general and historian from the fifth century BC, whom you read here um, at St. John's. Thucydides, as you all know, recounts the tale of the disastrous Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta. And he tells us that all of Greece at that time was broken into two political parties, one advocating for aristocratic oligarchy and one in favor of more decentralized democracy. And the struggle between these two parties was violent and fanatic. And the result, Thucydides says, and I'm quoting from a modern translation, society, quote, society became divided into two ideologically hostile camps and each side viewed the other with suspicion. And this partisanship could not be ended, Thucydides says, because, quote, no guarantee could be given that would be trusted. No oath sworn that people would fear to break. Everyone had come to the conclusion that it was hopeless to expect a permanent settlement, and so, instead of being able to feel confident in others, they devoted their energies to providing against being injured themselves. Everyone was out for themselves. So the upshot of that breakdown of trust among the Greeks was that atrocity followed atrocity. Men became beasts, and in words that should be, I think, remembered forever, Thucydides lamented the loss of what he called, quote, the ordinary conventions of civilized life. And uh, this was because Thucydides says, quote, the Greeks had begun the process of repealing those general laws of, humanities, of humanity which are there to give a hope of salvation to all who are in distress instead of remembering that there may come a time when they too will be in danger and will need the protection of these laws of humanity, end quote. So putting aside the possibility of some deranged person with a AR-47, I don't think we're in the danger of atrocities. Um, but we are in danger we are in serious danger of losing trust in those general laws of humanity that allow us to work together despite our disagreements, however passionate those disagreements might become. The loss of trust in our society now is corrosive, and every day it becomes more and more widespread. Nearly 50 years ago, almost half of all Americans agreed that, quote, most Americans can be trusted, most people can be trusted. But today, if you look at similar polling data, that number has fallen to less than one in three. In 1964, 77% of Americans said that they trusted the federal government to do what is right, at least most of the time, 77%. In 2019, that number had dwindled dwindled down to 17%, from 77% to 17%. In 1971, 71% of Americans had a great deal or a fair amount of trust in the Supreme Court. In 2022, that number had shrunk to 47%. When they were asked, Americans report a lower opinion of Congress than of root canals, than of colonoscopies, than of Brussels sprouts, 
than of traffic jams, a lower opinion of Congress than of traffic jams. And I think it's a small comfort that Congress did, hire, did manage a higher approval rating than telemarketers, <laughs> than North Korea, or than the Ebola virus. I mean, it sounds funny, but actually it's tragic. It's really tragic. We live in a representative democracy. Our government represents us. The House of Representatives is the people's house. If we detest our own government, what does that say about us? Do we loathe ourselves? Or we despise our neighbors? If we disavow our institutions of governance, we confess our own inadequacy. And, and something even worse, without institutions of governance that we trust, we become vulnerable because we cannot act together. We cannot build a common future to ensure our common security. Institutions of governance and the laws that establish and guide them are necessary if we're going to enjoy the immense, the unfathomably large goods of cooperation. Excessive partisanship undercuts the social trust required for the political processes that underwrite government and law. Whatever kind of society you want to build, whether it's conservative or liberal, it doesn't matter. It can only be established through the very political processes that depend upon trust. Whatever you want to do, it requires social trust, social capital in order to achieve it. <clears throat> and many millennia ago, Thucydides described the hell that's created by the erosion of trust. Thucydides said, quoting him now, human nature, always ready to offend even where laws exist, shows itself proudly in its true colors as something incapable of controlling passion, insubordinate to the idea of justice, and the enemy of anything that is superior to itself. So without trust, Thucydides teaches us, there can be no law. There can be no justice. There can be no security. There can only be a continual struggle for self-preservation. There can only be what Hobbes would call a war of all against all. And the question I'm raising here is not whether we should trust particular government decisions. Any particular government decision can be right or wrong, and you know that's random. But the question is rather whether we have any option but to trust the political processes by which we engage each to the other to determine how we shall all act together and how we shall make our laws. And I, I know full well that these political processes can often be perversely slow and slanted and unresponsive, and they may even at times be uh, corrupt, but these political processes are all that we have. And therefore, we must paradoxically use them to make these very processes better and fairer. We have no other option. Politics in a democracy must necessarily be open to everyone. And this means, this has rather large implications, this means we cannot enter politics without encountering those who disagree with us and perhaps who may disagree radically. It's therefore essential that we find a way to structure our encounters with those with whom we disagree in a manner that evades the problem of excessive partisanship. And Thucydides gave us a clue 
about how this delicate balance might be maintained, and he put it in the mouth of Pericles, you know, the great Athenian leader, and in his famous funeral oration for the Athenian war dead, Thucydides has Pericles praise Athens as a democracy because power is in the hands not of a minority, but of the whole people. In Athens, says Pericles, we are free and tolerant in our private lives, but in public affairs, we keep to the law, and this is because it commands our deep respect. Why did Athenians respect the law? Because Athenians made the law. They were all involved in the making of the law. And Pericles pointedly observes, I'm quoting him, here each individual is interested <clears throat> not only in his own affairs, but in the affairs of the state as well. Even those who are mostly occupied with their own business are extremely well informed on general politics. This, says Pericles, is a peculiarity of ours. We do not say that a man who takes no interest in politics is a man who minds his own business. We say that he has no business here at all. So this is really an extraordinary thing because politics, as you know, in Athens in the fifth century BC was a deadly serious business far more so than in the United States. Today, failed politicians could be exiled or ostracized or worse. But nevertheless, Pericles summons Athenians to full participation in the political process because he argues, quote, happiness depends upon being free and freedom depends upon being courageous. So what does being free mean? Being free in Pericles' language means being self governing. It means having the capacity to fashion your own future according to your own ideals. And it is a miraculous and really a wonderful thing to enter democratic politics in order to realize your convictions. But to the extent that we loathe our political adversaries and seek to exclude them from the common political space that the Greeks called the agora, we abandoned the possibility of a shared future. It's not possible to sustain a democracy that includes the whole people if we refuse to deal with our adversaries. Democracy fails, therefore, if we seek advantage only for ourselves or only for our own tribe or only for our own party. Of course, it's possible. It's possible that our adversaries may be so awful that we come to believe that we cannot share a future with them. And this is what happened, say, in the American Civil War but such times are necessarily very rare, which is why Carl Schmitt was wrong to analogize politics to war. Politics is not like war. Politics is the art of living together despite differences. In war, we seek to exterminate the other, but in politics, we abjure violence, which is to say we seek to win while remaining bound to rules, to the law, that define appropriate political engagement. In war, our opponents are our enemies whom we seek to destroy. In politics, our opponents are our agonists over whom we seek to triumph, but with whom we are bound to live and with whom we are bound to obey a common set of rules. Enemies become agonists only when both sides to a controversy acknowledge that they have something in common that's more important than their disagreement. Therefore, it only happens when both sides acknowledge mutual allegiance to some 
shared polity. And that means that both sides acknowledge that they are bound to a common destiny, a shared fate that defines the identity of a country. And that is what holds together a polis or a nation. Civil war looms when we rupture that shared fate and decide to go our separate ways. Pericles emphasizes that democracy requires courage. Democracy requires the courage to persist in pursuing our ideals while at the same time resisting the temptation to an excessive partisanship that excludes our agonists from the agora, which is to say from the possibility of a shared democratic politics. And that is a rare kind of courage. It requires patience and endurance. It must be maintained even as democratic politics seems repeatedly to fail and even as it seems to fall under the, under the control of those who oppose our deepest ideals. The, the poet in the 20th century who to me most tellingly articulated what it might mean to lose faith in a common political future was the Nobel laureate Czesław Miłosz. Miłosz was a Lithuanian who wrote in Polish and uh, his life's work was to try to understand the havoc that World War II unleashed in what Tim Snyder called the bloodlands, the, the area in Poland and Lithuania and so on. And Miłosz believed that uh, the root of the problem was that Eastern Europeans had lost trust in one another and hence that they had abandoned the possibility of a shared political engagement. He writes a, a monumental poem, it's called Child of Europe, and in that poem, Miwash describes the cynical world created by the war in Eastern Europe. This is from the poem, he writes this, he says, we, from the fiery furnaces, from behind barbed wires on which the winds of endless autumns howled, we, who remember battles where the wounded air roared in paroxysms of pain, we, saved by our own cunning and knowledge, having the choice of our own death and that of our friend, we chose his, coldly thinking, let it be done quickly. We sealed gas chamber doors, stole bread, knowing that the next day would be harder to bear than the day before. Miwash writes that Europeans learned all the wrong lessons from the calamity of the war. This is from that poem, he writes, Love no country, countries soon disappear. Love no city, cities are soon rubble. Do not love the people, people soon perish, or they are wronged and call for your help. These are really chilling lines. They describe what it is like to inhabit the bleak and the cruel world long ago described by Thucydides. It's a world in which persons are out for themselves alone. It is a world in which cunning and calculation reign. It is a world without trust and therefore without hope for the future. It is a world without politics because no bargains can be struck. It is a world in which all are at war with all and no one, no one would choose to live in such a bleak and desperate world. As he grew older, Miwash began slowly to heal from the mighty blows of the war. And he writes a poem called What I Learned from Jean Hirsch. And in that poem, he enumerates the lessons that he had painfully gleaned from his formidable historical experience. The poem consists of 12 numbered propositions, but I'm going to read to you only three. 
three of these propositions. One, that they have been wrong who undermined our confidence in reason, our confidence in reason by enumerating the forces that want to usurp reason, class struggle, libido, will to power. Proposition two, that the proper attitude toward being is respect. Proposition three, that in our lives we should not succumb to despair for the past is never closed down and receives the meaning we give it by our subsequent acts. Three propositions. And I pick these propositions because to me they contain very profound insights that are worth pausing over to, um, to try to understand and they give us a way out of our present circumstances. They are insights, I think, that might show us a way out of the hell created by mistrust and polarization. And also, they are insights that allow us to understand the importance of the curriculum you have here at St. John's College. So first, Miwash tells us that we must have confidence in our reason. Think now about your curriculum here at St. John's. You read great texts because those texts somehow reach out to you from the past. But how really is that possible? How do these texts reach, reach out over centuries and millennia? Without question, the important connection between you and the text that you study is your reason. You study texts from the finest thinkers that humanity has ever produced, and lo and behold, the ideas of these long dead thinkers challenge you. They speak to you in ways that inspire conversation and dialogue. And no one, no one could be more distant from you in customs and traditions and language or in life, say, than Aristotle. And yet in your classrooms, through the medium of your reason, you reach out across the millennia and you converse with an ancient Greek. That's a miracle. It's your reason that enables that miracle. And the curriculum here at St. John is filled with texts that encourage that kind of rational engagement. But I'm focusing on rational engagement not because it gives you truths. I'm focusing on it because it creates forms of connection. And it's the form of connection that reason creates that I want to emphasize here. At St. John's, you learn from texts not merely the lessons or the truths that they have to teach, you can dispute those, but more fundamentally what you learn is how to converse with a stranger whose ideas are radically different than yours. Reason is a really remarkable thing because it can only thrive under conditions of respect. To reason with another person is to take in their ideas and to counter them in a way that evinces trust that reason will matter to them as well as to you. In the conversation, there's always two sides. And this means that when we reason with one another, we model the trust that's necessary for democracy. To reason with another person is not to lose track of your own commitments, it's instead to maintain your own commitments despite another's disagreement. And miraculously, reason allows you to perform your own commitments within a relationship that also acknowledges and trusts in the, in the good of another, in the good faith of another. So that's point one. 
second proposition I read to you. Miwash reminds us that it's necessary to use our reason to fashion ideals that are worth pursuing. So Miwash tells us that one of the most important of these ideals is that, and this is the language I read to you, that we respect being. And I think that means we must respect the facticity of the world, the facticity of the world. And what is that about? That's about the fact that the world is as it is, regardless of what you might wish it to be. And we have to have humility before the facts of the world. One of the most important functions of our reason is to protect us from that most tempting of fantasies, which is to believe that the world is merely what we wish it to be. A world that is at the mercy of fantasies is a world that is at the mercy of power. Reason, respect for the gritty, irreducible facticity of the world is an antidote to our own incessant will to power. Miwash lived in Eastern Europe, which suffered really unspeakable horrors. Uh, and in part, those horrors were inflicted because in the ideology of both the Nazis and the Soviet Union, facts counted for nothing. For both the Nazis and the Soviet Union, uh, history was to be reshaped at will. You could just rewrite history as if it was a blank slate because facts didn't matter. And Miwash describes this in a poem called Faith, and he rejects that approach to facts. I'm going to read you some lines from that poem now. He says, the word faith means when someone sees a dewdrop or a floating leaf and knows that they are because they have to be, and even if you dreamed or closed your eyes and wished, the world would still be what it was, and the leaf would still be carried down the river. Respect for being requires faith that there is a world outside of us and that that world matters. The world is what it is and cannot be remade merely to accord to your desires. No matter what your wishes are, the leaf will still be carried down the river. And this is a particularly important insight when it comes to other people. Other people are also facts in the world. And they must be respected just as all other facts must be respected. And one expression of this respect is to engage other people through politics. It is no expression of respect to obliterate other people through war or to exclude them from the agora in the hope that they will vanish. Other people won't disappear even if we close our eyes and wish them away. And this is true even when other people have opinions that we regard as obnoxious or wrong-headed or violently incorrect. Respect for being means accepting the fundamental alterity of others, which is the foundation of all politics. Politics, says the political theorist Hannah Arendt, presupposes men, not man. And what she means by that is it presupposes plurality, not singularity, but plurality. And here's the rub, without politics, none of us can be free. That's what Pericles told us. In this life, we are thrown willy-nilly into a common lifeboat. We flourish together or we do not flourish at all. And that is why political ideology counts for much 
but it does not count. It cannot count for everything. And excessive partisanship denies this basic truth. And I remind you, this is also why race, ethnicity, religion, gender, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, and all such categories, they all count for a great deal, but they do not count for everything. And if they did, our common life rope would break into fragments and be swamped. And you know this at St. John's. Your curriculum is fabulously diverse. You study figures as different as Lucretius and Dante, Kepler and Maimonides, or Machiavelli and Proust, or Mozart and the Bhagavad Gita, or Ralph Ellison and Richard Feynman. You can't find opposites more diverse than this. If here at St. John's, with a curriculum as various and as far-ranging as that, you cannot learn to honor the plurality of the world, to respect its fabulous facticity and otherness, you can't learn it anywhere. The third and the last proposition in Miwash's poem that I read to you um, tells us that we should not despair of the present. I know that the present may at times, and especially in these times, appear bleak, but we must nevertheless maintain hope for the future and hope, um, as St. Augustine instructs us, this is what St. Augustine says, he says, hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain the way they are. Where there is hope, the present is never fixed. Paradoxically, paradoxically, we can refashion the present by changing the future. And if you think that's strange, consider this beautiful poem by the German poet Wilkie. It's called A Walk. This is how the poem reads. My eyes already touch the sunny hill going far ahead of the road I have begun. So we are grasped by what we cannot grasp. It has its inner light even from a distance and changes us even if we do not reach it into something else, which hardly sensing it we already are. A gesture waves us on, answering our own wave, but what we feel is the wind in our faces. To change our idea of the future, to hope, to aim, to aspire, is to change the present. And that is why respect for being is not a recipe for passivity. It does not demand that injustices be endured. Miwash ends his own poem, Faith, with these lines. This is what he says. Look, see the long shadow cast by the tree, and flowers and people throw shadows on the earth. What has no shadow has no strength to live. So our strength to live is a fact of our being. It must be respected like all facts. We must cast our shadows upon the earth. We must love our country, love our city, love one another. We must engage in politics to make our country and our city respectable and to make it whole. Whatever future we may hope to create, we have no choice. We have no choice but to inhabit it together and that means we must live with those whom we might otherwise oppose. And this means, this means that we have to stand firmly balanced in the tension 
between our own ideals and our respect for the alterity of others. And that requires an equilibrium as fragile and as delicate and yet as inevitable as a shadow falling on a leaf floating down a river. How, how can we maintain this remarkable equilibrium? How can we stand rooted in ourselves and yet retain a posture of respect for others whom we believe to be quite wrong and fraught with danger for the country? What model do we have for such a paradoxical, contradictory form of connection? So think now of the educational miracle at St. John's. You study the great texts of the past and yet you prepare students to live in the present. How is that possible? How is it possible to stand in the shadows of the gigantic thinkers that you study, the finest in the history of mankind, and yet to have your own thoughts? To have your own thoughts. Notice that across the ages, the thinkers which you study engage each other. And as they do, they display both respect for the views of their interlocutors, and at the same time, the determination to assert their own ideas. So notice in this simple, almost overlooked fact that every day in your study, you see exemplified exactly this miraculous and difficult equilibrium that democracy demands of its citizens. And at St. John's, you model, you enact at the very highest level, the difficulties and contradictions of inhabiting a democratic polis. You study the great books of the past, but you know full well that the authors of these books differ among themselves, and that, as you say in your statement of the St. John's College program, these great books, in the end, serve as prompts for you students to struggle together with fundamental questions. So that, as you say, students and teachers can learn from their differences and discover more deeply their shared humanity. At St. John's, students learn to assert their own ideas, you learn to assert your own ideas, in the teeth of the most challenging and magnificent figures of the past. And you learn to do that by using your reason, which means in the context of a respect for those with whom you are in dialogue, and at the same time an acknowledgement of the difference. So what you are trying to achieve here in this precious community that you inhabit is precisely that fragile, inexpressibly vulnerable, but necessary equilibrium that balances the use of reason to achieve a self-respecting view of your own, but at the same time exemplifies a genuinely other-directed respect for the views of interlocutors, however mistaken they might be. That's the paradoxical equilibrium of which Miwash writes. That is the equilibrium that's necessary for democracy. That is the equilibrium that will restore trust in our fellow citizens. That is the equilibrium that will empower us all to walk forward in confidence, filled with an inner light that will illuminate in the present the possibility of a common future. In his recent wonderful book, entitled College, Columbia literature professor Andrew Dobanko asks, what is college for? Why do we have this thing? And in his answer, he quotes from a manuscript that he found in a small Methodist college in southeastern Virginia 
that a student wrote. It was a handwritten manuscript in 1850. And the student writes in his day book, he writes, quote, oh, that the Lord would allow me, oh, that the Lord would show me how to think and how to choose. So in learning how to think, you will put your trust in reason. In learning how to choose, you will cast a shadow in the world. And most important of all, at a college like this one, like St. John's, you will learn these things together in a common conversation. That is to say, you will learn how to think and how to choose in the context of respect for those who think and choose differently. You will learn, that is, how to become citizens of a great democracy, and you will become inoculated against the violent forms of polarization that now threaten to tear us apart and to foreclose our future. It is in this way that St. John's, by maintaining its faith in the past, also maintains faith with our democratic destiny. As St. John's adapts the great ideas of the past to the terrible contingencies of the present, it creates hope for the future. And this is an occasion to celebrate the educational ideals of St. John's and to express our hope that they will cast a long shadow on our national life. <laughs>